Well, I know the, the weather this morning is a little bit nicer than it's been for a while. I get sat on the porch, not done that in the morning for a few weeks. Uh, I think just a few degrees cooler and a little lower humidity makes a big difference, doesn't it? It's felt so much better today. I know you enjoyed that as well as I did. I also want to add something. That this time of year, we've, uh, we may have been making a practice of sending actually prayer cards to all the employees in the MISD, the school district here, which is, if you didn't know, is 4,297 employees. So that's a lot of people, uh, the educators, uh, the administrators, the custodians, uh, everyone receives a prayer card. Uh, we have those available for you to help us do. What we have done is we put a little package of about 15 cards, says thank you, has a word about what this is about, has the name of the person, the address on the back. All you have to do is take the card and write, I'm praying for you, uh, a Bible verse, or thank you for what you do. What do you feel led to write to someone? Uh, and uh, put a stamp on there and mail it. Last year, we received a great deal of, uh, of feedback from this from, from teachers and educators and others in our school district about what it meant to them. Think with, me, think with me like this. Someone is getting ready to teach their very first class. They're 22 years old, just graduated, and they've decorated the room all summer. They're so excited. They're ready, but they're also petrified. And they have no idea what they've got themselves into either, if it's their first year. Uh, but they get a prayer from someone at First Methodist Church saying, I'm praying for you as you begin this new year. How meaningful that is. Think of a custodian. They're all, almost invisible sometimes. But nothing happens without them, making sure everything's clean, prepared, ready, unlocked for the, the two students, teachers to show up. And they get a card. Someone's praying for them and what they do, how they serve maintenance, whatever it might be. So it's significant. So if you want to do that, and hope you do, pick up, they're, they're only at the exit right here. Pick a packet up and take it with you. Now, we're probably going to run out. That's hard to believe when you have over 4,000. Uh, we've only put it out today. They've almost all been taken already. I know there's about 30 or 40 back there, I believe. I'm just guessing how many there might be there. So, well, if you have to leave early, I guess it's take, take out there. But, uh, uh, but even if you can't get a card, pray for them all. Just pray. Prayer is a difference beside that. We've already discussed we might need to add maybe some other school districts to this one to surround us. And that's pretty cool that we are capable of doing that. So enough, enough talk about that. Today we are now in a series we're calling Revival. That's a word that you probably heard, uh, uh, may have experienced, may not have. A several week series heading into the fall, thinking about the word revival, what it means. Think about the verses you heard read, John the Baptist, uh, the words of repentance and forgiveness of sins and that commitment to Christ made that way and how the, the, the New Testament begins with these kind of words. And think also with me about what revival is not. What is it not? Well, I don't think revival is just inspiration. Inspiration is good, but inspiration can happen by seeing any movie or reading any book or article with a sports theme. We can always be inspired how the underdog team beat the powerful team. That's always, that's always guaranteed to draw a little tear at the end. When they win, they cross the finish line first or their score goes up first or whatever it is. We're always excited about that. Inspiration is really easy to come by. It's not hard for me to tell an inspiring story and we're going to, oh man, and we feel that. That's it. But that doesn't last very long sometimes, does it? It's not, also not, or just not, a challenge, a challenge to do something. You know, climb Mount Everest, 
You know, just do something you've never done before. Uh, jump out of an airplane. You know, there, we can always show challenges of any sort, even biblical challenges. Read the Bible through in a year. That's a challenge. Come to church every week. That's a challenge. Hope you do that. Uh, they, we can always challenge. That's not what revival is either. Certainly not just that. It's certainly not guilt. Now, if, if we want to make people feel guilty, that is really easy to do because we're on the verge of guilt all the time anyway. Most of us are already in an area we understand what guilt means. We, we identify with that. So it's not about guilt either. What is revival? The word revival really literally means something dead is made alive again. Something dying is restored to life. Ask an emergency room technician or doctor what revival is when they revive someone who's brought to them who is dying or already at the verge or even already dead and they bring them back to life and, and how that once dead situation becomes alive. And so that's what revival really means. And, and the key for me today throughout the series is this. You cannot have revival spiritually without repentance. You cannot have revival without repentance. Inspiration, challenges, and guilt is not enough. It takes more than that as we turn to God in the fullness of who Christ is and in that recognizing who we really are, and hear me now, who we really are not. We're talking about repentance. You know, I've I preached a lot of revivals in my life, and you may have been to one, you may not. How many have been to what's officially called a revival? Ever been to one? Uh, the older the congregation, the more hands go up. You get really young people, they'll say, huh, what's a revival? It's not something the church does very much anymore, revivals per se. When I first came to Mansfield, the first year I was here, and Sharon would remember that, we had a revival the first year. And we had it in the chapel, which was the only building we had at that time for worship. And we put a sign on the roof, talked about a revival, and we invited people to come. And we had a lot of people come for that preaching and singing and what revival was. I preached revivals in my younger days as a minister in places like Gould Busk. How many know where Gould Busk is? How many have actually been to Gould Busk? A few of you have been. We're talking about Texas country out there. The revival, we had an average attendance of 80, which was remarkable for a church that run about 20 or 30 in worship. But everybody in town came, that little bitty town. Did a revival in Blanket at one time. Had five days in a row of coming and preaching to people. Church was full every night. People came to revivals back then pretty well. Had great music, the choir sang. Church not very big, but remember that revival. I know Rhonda, my wife, remember. She would always go with me. Did a revival at Coleman one time for my brother at Trinity Coleman. Not the big church, the little church in Coleman. When you say little church in Coleman, you mean little church in Coleman, Texas. At Trinity, Meth Trinity Methodist Church. I see folks here know exactly where that church is. It's still, still going today. Uh, we talk about revival. Uh, Ron and I went to revivals when we were dating. Now, that's pretty unusual, I think, today. We, we went to Lums, which is a little restaurant in Key West, on occasion. Went to IHOP, you know, usually after church. Occasionally, we went, went beyond that, went to Pizza Hut, just splurged at Pizza Hut. That was our dating years. Went to revivals on occasion. Now, now, you're, now that we met in church, so it makes sense. We're going to go to revivals together. And there was a rule in churches back in those early years there in the 70s, and the rule was that you could not, if you, if you weren't married, like we weren't, we were only dating, you had to be able to put a hymn book in between the two of you if you're going to sit together, a hymn book. I think today we're looking, we're hoping that a piece of paper is, you can get in there today and 
with, with younger people. You know, they're not worried about that much anymore. So you think about revivals, what they are and what they're not. And, and one, of those tent, one of those revivals was a tent revival. Now, now, back in those years, that was a serious revival when you were in a tent because God can work better in a tent than he can in a real building. I don't know why. That was kind of the rule they had. You know, tent, and if you had sawdust in the ground, hey, Jesus can come today. That's how we understood revival. So we went to a tent revival, which means you're uncomfortable and hot and can't hear very well. And, and the preachers always yelled at the top of their lungs. You had to have the yelling to make it work. Without yelling, no God, no Jesus, no soul saved, no life changed. You've got to yell. And, and the yelling comes from before that time when there were no microphones. The best preachers had the loudest voices because they could be heard by everybody. So they learned to preach by yelling. When they got microphones, they never noticed. I have a microphone now. I don't have to yell anymore. But they continued to yell because somehow yelling and Jesus went together. Uh, that coming to Christ and having this went together. That, that's how it worked. What a revival is somebody, a marriage, a family, a church, a community that either, either is dead or dying, being restored to life in the grace and love and Holy Spirit of God. That's a revival. And there is no revival without, I've said it already, repentance. There's the word repentance, what it means. One famous old-time revival song goes like this. Revive us again. Fill each heart with their love. May soul be rekindled with fire from above. That makes some sense, but it may not be accurately representing what revival is. A better song might be, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Because the more we know who God is, the more we are drawn where? To our knees to repent. Realize who God, the magnificent nature of a loving, holy, righteous, grace-giving, cross-dying God who wants to save and give us life. We may have lost that life or never experienced it at all. God offers that, and the word revival are the words we use today. In doing some research, which I've done uh, quite a bit of that, on historical revivals, and there are many throughout the history of the world, uh, certainly the, the words you heard read uh, today in Scripture was the beginning of a revival, three years with Jesus, and the church that was born beyond that after the resurrection was a revival dead coming to life is what happened through that, through Christ, his good news and the story of the church. Again, throughout history, revivals have happened on occasion, either in a community or a church or even a nation. And there have historically been many national revivals that changed entire nations, uh, denominational revivals that changed denominations, community revivals that changed communities, and church revivals that changed, changed, changed churches, and of course, revivals that began just one, just me, I'm the only one who had the revival, but it changed me when I came to Christ and I understood what happened in my life and that change made for me. And, that, and, that, and there's one, again, historically, one common denominator. I know you're already ahead of me on this one. In every historical revival, and that is repentance. People that are aware that they are away from where God wants them to be. They're not who God called them to be. They do not have a walk with God or a relationship with God. Or they're playing, I'm just going to say it, living in sin. And they're not living the way God wants them to live. They're not doing what they should do. And they're doing things they should not do. And it's destroying them. Destroying families, communities, their church and other people and the world they live in. And it's time to return to revival, dead into life. Death into life. This is how it works. Now, as you know, you're today in a, in a Methodist church. 
Uh, and the Methodist church really influenced all our nation and really pretty much every church as well historically. Uh, regardless of how many denominations there are, groups or organizations, uh, the Wesleyan church actually began, the Methodist began as a revival and not a church at all. There was never an intention at the beginning for a church as a denomination to be born from this, but the Revolutionary War had something to say about that and created a new denomination here probably because of that war. It was begun as simply as a revival in the Church of England, uh, led by two men and others who served with them named John Wesley and Charles Wesley. Now I want to show you a picture of John Wesley. Now John Wesley, uh, there's a picture, there he is. That wasn't John Wesley, the fellow wearing the... There's John Wesley uh, uh, and, and a, a painting of him, an accurate painting of John Wesley. Now, John Wesley is not, not the founder of the Methodist Church. He's the, he's the one where revival began in. It began in him. And then it moved beyond him to his brother, Charles Wesley. And then people around England, all over England, and eventually into the United States, America, and westward uh, throughout the history of this nation. It was about a revival. Uh, and it began in his own heart and his own life. Now, John Wesley was a preacher's kid. Uh, and he was a very educated man. He could speak, uh, he, he knew well Hebrew and Greek and Latin and English. He was a smart guy, graduate of Oxford Seminary, and had been a, a pastor, minister as a young man. But he was lost. He knew that he did not know God personally, and he was frustrated, he was guilty, uh, he felt depressed, uh, he was frustrated that, that he couldn't serve God the way he wanted to, and he felt like he was a complete failure. And John Wesley, after a series of events in his life, in his early 30s, went to a place called Aldersgate. I'm going to show you a picture of Aldersgate. Not there anymore as this, but it was back in those years, talking the 1700s. Uh, he goes to Aldersgate, and there he simply, in a small group of people, someone gets up and reads, just read, no preacher, no yelling, just reading, what's called Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. It's a reading about the book of Romans, justification by faith, who Jesus Christ is, that's what that's about. Uh, and he hears that, and when he hears that, here's what happens, and we're going to go to the next uh, slide there, the next uh, scene. Uh, and this records what happened there. If you can read that, it says, felt his heart strangely warmed. The experience of grace was the beginning of Methodism, 1738. There was no Methodist church. It didn't exist. There were years, decades before an actual denomination of any sort existed. This time it was just a revival in the life of one man who experienced Christ in a personal way and felt grace in his heart. And you have on your message page all those words out. I didn't, and there's no underlines today for those who realize I usually use underlines. And there are words that are said. And I'm going I'm to say the broad thing that he wrote later on about what happened. We'll read it for you. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sin, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was lost, and now I'm found. Uh, I, I, Jesus was somebody I read about and, and knew all about and could speak all kinds of words that he said, but now he's in my heart. In fact, the words strangely warmed are words from the Old Testament. 
He uses biblical words that he already knew to rephrase what happened in his own life. And revival began right there in that moment. Revival always begins with each one of us. And we seriously take not only the, the teaching and demands of Jesus, but take seriously our own, our own need of God. An awareness of the need of grace. An awareness that maybe I am feeling like I'm dying inside, or maybe I'm not who I want to be, or maybe my life is destructive, or I'm being destroyed myself. Maybe that's where I am, and, and the word for that is sin, and, and, and there's an answer. And Acts 3.19 goes on to say, and I think phrase the same revival John Wesley experienced, and Mark promises with these words, now it's time to change your ways. Turn to face God so he can wipe away your sins, pour out showers of blessings, to refresh you, to revive you, to revive your marriage and family, community, world, and church, to experience that that God so makes so readily available to us in his good news because Christ is crucified and Christ is raised from the dead and Christ does want to come into our lives and our hearts and he does want to revive us. He just waits for us to ask and recognize our condition and our need. So it's an intense importance to me that you understand revival cannot happen without personal repentance, which means to turn and to change. The word is metanoia. In the Greek, it doesn't matter what the word is, but it means to completely change and turn and be made new, to be going one direction and then to go another, the way God directs our life in the fullness of joy, peace, and the word there at Aldersgate, grace, God wants to give us in our lives. Now, there's a second point we have to also take into account. Revival really can't happen without the source of all this good news, which is, as you probably know, it's the Bible. It's the Bible. Wesley wrote some years later in 1746, and he had to struggle with this. He had to decide, where is the teaching, direction, guidance going to come from to direct this revival? Because when he told his brother, his brother believed. His brother Charles wrote many hymns in our hymn book and hymn books of churches around the world. And that revival began to spread around England by the thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people coming to Christ and being revived themselves and across the pond uh, to America where it happened here because there was a bunch of sinners here, they thought. Let's send Thomas Coke and, 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 and uh, Francis Asbury over there to offer them Christ, the, word, the command they were given to do. And they did. And so there, there's a Methodist church in every little town around the country probably. Some have 20 people in them, some have like this thousands, but they're everywhere because of the revival and what it meant to come to Christ and that work. And, and he said that in 1746, he wrote these words, let me be, and I'm not a Latin scholar, so I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, but I'll do my best. Let me be homo unis libri, a man of one book. The Bible is the core of where it all comes from and the source of good news direction for life and where salvation is promised in the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the, my personal heroes, and I, I respect him highly, is Billy Graham. Billy Graham is in his 90s now, an amazing man and what he did. Uh, he preached to more people personally than anyone in history ever has or probably ever will. And there are those who preach to more because of television or radio or the internet but no one in personal revivals where they could see his face, he could see their face in the crusades around the country. So an amazing person. Here's what he says. He certainly tells us that he had his own time of personal revival when uh, he came to Christ at a Youth for Christ rally as a very young man. 
raise his hand, I accept Jesus as my Savior. He became a part of the church in that unique way. But some years later, after college, seminary, all these educated times, he began to question what had happened in his life. He began to to question what the good news really was because in that time and still, what was happening in in Christian education institutes, especially the the, the master's level ones, was what's called biblical criticism. Still happens in seminaries today. Notice that they criticized the Bible, but it was, a, 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 it was a way of looking at the Bible and criticizing it in such a way that this is really true, this is not. This is, uh, Jesus said this, Jesus did not say that. Uh, this is what this really meant, this is where it came from. And so they began breaking the Bible apart into pieces and making it less than inspired or meaningful or God's Word. So he began wondering about that himself, and he questioned that personally. And he had a second revival. The first one was when he came to Christ in the Youth for Christ rally. But this was a second revival where he went out in the Los Angeles area before one of his crusades. He was already doing crusades. And he went out and he, and he went into the woods and he began to pray. And he had a Bible in his hand and he said, he said God, I'm not going to doubt one day more this is your word. I am going to believe it and I'm going to preach it till I die. And he took that up, and, and he never, as far as I know, questioned it again. And this became his, his book. It formed and shaped his faith, formed and shaped his preaching, formed and shaped who he was and his family, and all those he shared good news with. So there were two things then that began one of the great revivals in our nation through Billy Graham, and that was, of course, personal experience of Christ. And secondly, this amazing idea, the Bible is really God's Word. I'm not going to question it anymore. When I read it, I know God's talking to me and I will listen to what he says. The Bible that we don't pay attention to is not going to help us or bless us. And that was a big change for him. Second Timothy, the words are similar in some ways. Uh, The Apostle Paul writing to a young man beginning ministry. Since childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures that help you to be wise in a way that leads to salvation, revival, through faith in Jesus Christ. Every scripture is inspired by God. So we So we have those words laid out for us, the Bible, and we have Jesus. We have what revival is and what it isn't. We have our own history in the Methodist Church, whether you're visiting here with us or uh, or, or you're a longtime member. uh, Know that it's about revival, not about the name of a church or denomination. It means nothing. That means very little. What means something is it's about the core, our roots, our birth. In this church, 130 years ago this year, this church was born in Mansfield five years older than the actual city Mansfield is. Uh, in this country, 1700s, the Methodist Church was born, and in England sometime before that, around the words revival. Now, John Wesley says something else we need to hear. As he talks about how we engage being dead and being made alive again, dying and being restored, being lost and being found, amazing grace uh, coming into our life. He says these words later on. This is a fundamental truth. None will come to Christ as Redeemer until he is thoroughly convinced he wants and needs a Redeemer. No man will come to him as Savior till he knows and feels himself a lost sinner. And he uses the word sinner. Uh, Now, I'm guessing you don't use the word redemption very much in your world or repentance. Probably not sinner, sinner either. 
uh, and yet it is a key component of being revived to recognize our condition, who we are, who we are not, where we are, and where we are not. We live in a culture that has guns blazing, dedicated to eliminate the idea of sin at all. And so we are overwhelmed by that news from our culture that says there's no such thing as sin. It does not exist. There's really hardly anything that is wrong or damaging. We hear that a lot in our culture. And we can believe that sometimes when it's not what the Bible teaches. We must understand about our own nature to receive Christ and what Christ does for us by recognizing there is such a thing as sin. It's really, I think, quite astonishing that 87% of Americans say they believe there is sin, but you ask them what sin is, hardly anything is sinful. Now, please hear me. I believe there is sin, but nothing I'm doing is sinful, is what they're saying. Uh, No no way that I'm living or things I'm not doing, nothing in my life is sinful. I'm a pretty good person, and, and, you know, in respect to most people around us, most of us are pretty good people, but not compared to the holy, holy, holy God. If we're not careful, we can have a religion or a faith that is simply human. The core is human. It's who humans are and what we're not and and what we're about instead of the center being Almighty God. Because Almighty God will draw us to our needs. Will draw us to our needs. Almighty God. We're the center, it'll simply be what are my benefits? What can I get? How can I be blessed? Uh, How can my life be better? But it will not be revival, and we will miss it. We won't experience it. We won't understand it. We won't receive what God really wants to do in a human heart to save and change a life, to save and change a marriage, to save and change a family, to save and change a church, to save and change the world we live in, which is what revival is about. And we miss that amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What's the key word in that? We'll say it again. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. What's the key word? It's not grace. We know about grace. We know God loves us. We we understand God's love. We we have that component given to us in the cross. It's hard to miss for God to love the world, isn't it? That's pretty clear. But we may not be aware and call ourselves, I'm a wretch. That's deep down. I know who I am deep down, and I sure need Jesus. And here is why. 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 To hear those words as we mark the beginning of what revival is, I was once dead and now I'm made alive. And we find that newness of life God offers us in these very simple words and how we have to to define sin clearly to accept that. We say things like, well, I made a mistake. That's a new word for sin, by the way, for some people. Uh, I made a mistake. It was a mistake. Because I have people all the time tell me I made a mistake and they talk, tell me what they did. I'm saying, that wasn't a mistake, but that's, that's a sin. <laughs> that wasn't a, a mistake is uh, giving the wrong answer on a math test. That's a mistake. A mistake is not taking the trash out on trash day, which I occasionally admit to not doing that because I forget what day it is still. Uh, a mistake is putting uh, gas, regular gas in a diesel truck. That's a mistake, but it's not a sin. 
So what is a sin? A sin destroys the human heart. It destroys my relationship with myself. Just with me. Sometimes it's just me in my own life where I've hurt myself by a behavior or a choice, an action or a lack of action. You know, marriages are typically broken up by sin, not by mistakes. Sin is what destroys marriage, what destroys human lives. It destroys families, it destroys churches, it destroys communities, and it destroys nations. Sin is what destroys. It damages, it hurts, it breaks up, it ruins. That's what it does in small ways and large ways. And above all, it destroys fellowship with God. And God gives us an answer for that, and that's His grace. That's His grace that washes us, as Mark tells us, and repent, forgiveness of sins, and to, and to symbolize that, be baptized, to symbolize the washing away of your sin. No, you're now set free because you were once dead and now you're alive. What amazing good news God gives us in this simple truth that we celebrate in our life and our experience. So we, be, we go back to the beginning. There's no revival without repentance. Repentance is drawn from two sources or three sources, the Bible certainly. It's drawn from an awareness of our own condition and then the loving God who offers us salvation in Jesus Christ. And I'll say what I've said so many, that's why I'm a Christian. Because Christ came in my own life many years ago. And I can share it even today, no matter where we are, where we come from, who we are, who we're not. Grace is so free and so available to wash us and make us brand new for the nth time or the first time. With a big transition, a big transformation or something that's so small, only we know it. That's what God offers us, and that's where revival begins. Bow with me in prayer, please. God, you know us so well, and better we know ourselves. You give us so much, Lord, and we sometimes take your gifts for granted. But you know us, God, some of us are actively, because of sin, destroying our own lives. Do a little bit of it every day or all at once. Some of us are actively participating in destroying our marriages and our families because of sin. Some are somehow bringing that into the workplace, in the church maybe, in our community in small little bitty ways and big ways. This little thing and that little thing that builds up over time and I've done these huge things that seem like they destroy stuff overnight. So we come today to recognize that all of us in different forms and shapes are, are sinners. We have sinned. A little bit dying, maybe a whole lot dead. We ask you, God, in this series, in this day, and even now, to revive us, to restore us, to refresh us, to save us, to wash us anew of our sin, to restore us to the rich grace of our heart strangely warm, to begin revival, not in the world, but in each one of us, and everybody go beyond that to our spouse and our friends and our family, our church community, and the world that you call us to serve. By your grace and our faith and our prayer of repentance, pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.